Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Before we go to a, a brief discussion of last night's State of the Union message, I wanted to uh, look over certain passages in the Catechism dealing with safeguarding peace in uh, avoiding war. You know, people in times like this, people react right when you hear that uh, Putin did this or the Russian military did that. Uh, you, you know, you, you get your dander up and you you get angry, and yet. We always have to come back and say, okay, let's take a look at what the church teaches here. And something surprised me the other day, because you don't hear this very often, but an NBC uh, anchor actually implied that the West, he he didn't understand why the West didn't just go in there and basically destroy that Russian convoy, the 40-mile convoy of troops. Now, you, know, you understand the sentiment, right? Uh, there's like sitting ducks. You, we certainly have the firepower to take them out. But that's simply not the kind of public incitement uh, that we need. The Fifth Commandment, um, reading here from the Catechism, forbids the intentional destruction of human life. Because of the evils and injustices that accompany all war, the Church insistently urges everyone to prayer and to action so that the divine goodness may free us from the ancient bondage of war. All citizens and all governments are obliged to work for the avoidance of war. However, as long as the danger of war persists and there is no international authority with the necessary competence and power, governments cannot be denied the right of lawful self-defense once all peaceful efforts have failed. Again, the church is wise, has been through 2,000 years of applying uh, God's revelation to culture, to circumstances, to various governments. I mean, think about the church living uh, under dictatorships, uh, living under uh, monarchies, living under, uh, you know, republics uh, and uh, democracies and virtually any kind of governance, government, you'll find the church there, right? So we think, the church thinks very carefully about these things. And so in this case, the church lays down the commandment. Fifth commandment forbids the intentional destruction of human life. But, however... As long as the danger of war persists and there's no international authority with the necessary competence and power, governments cannot be denied the right of lawful self-defense once all peaceful efforts have failed. Uh, These passages, by the way, are really um, worth reading because there's, there's clarity in them. There's also nuance in them. Earthly peace. Here's another interesting passage. Earthly peace is the image and fruit of the peace of Christ, the messianic prince of peace. By the blood of his cross, in his own person, he killed hostility. He reconciled men with God and made his church the sacrament of the unity of the human race and of its union with God. He is our peace. He has declared, blessed are the peacemakers." 
there'll be people will be arguing for a long time over who's responsible uh, for this war. Uh, I'll just let you know, I think there are lots of historical uh, missed opportunities since the collapse of the Soviet Union. But I'm far from saying that the West is responsible. There are some scholars out there saying that the West is responsible for this. Look, who's responsible for this is is Vladimir Putin. Uh, Let's make it clear. He's the one that's given the orders. It's not uh, the Ukrainian people. It's not the Ukrainian government. It's not the West that has often stumbled in these relationships. It is Vladimir Putin. It takes real deliberation to decide that you're going to bomb, uh, in this case, in some cases, uh, noncombatants. Let me switch gears, though, and go to last night's State of the Union message. Last night... Uh, my producer, Brian Chainley, and I were working after hours. We've, we've just installed a library that's attached to my, my, my office here. First time I've had a, an office, in fact, here. But we've got a, it's a nice, it's a very nice land. So we're working to get the library on. So we listened to the, the vice president, or excuse me, the president uh, during the State of the Union. And it hit me that back in 1987, when I started uh, doing a program of this sort, you would always speak of the president, whether you liked him or not, whether you voted for him or not. You would always speak of the president in a respectful way because it was a matter of respecting the office, right? And it's similar to you know Catholics uh, in the way they try to be respectful of priests and bishops and the papacy. Uh, even if they don't like the particular individual who's occupying the office, you you still, for the sake of the office, uh, for the uh, in order to give the office its due, you you treat the res- the office holder with respect. And I thought, you know, that was that's the way I started broadcasting back in 1987. So even. When Bill Clinton came around in 1992, who I didn't care for at all, still spoke of the president in respectful ways. Uh, Now I have to make sure that I continue to speak in a respectful way. It's no longer second nature to me. Um, President Biden, as you might imagine, uh, is, is a frustrating figure for me as a Catholic, but also as an American. And last night, he probably had one of his best nights ever. Uh, the problem was that it wasn't really a State of the Union message. It ran more like a campaign speech. I mean, it, had a, it was full of things we're going to do. Um, it, it, it covered all the things that the president and his uh, Democratic friends are, that want to do. Uh, oh, he's saying, I'll sign it. Um, I have a better plan. We have to fix it. We also cut costs and keep the economy going strong. I'll send Congress a request. Soon we'll strengthen the Violence Against Women Act. Hey, we need to secure the border and fix the immigration system. That's just a handful of the endless promises that he made last night. Uh, and I, <laughs> All I can say is, The State of the Union message is supposed to be an opportunity 
to show us what's been accomplished, not merely what you're promising to do. So it reads, I mean, last night's speech sounded more like a campaign speech than it did a State of the Union message. Um, and all, all I can say is it was, there were lots of, there were lots of moments where he tried to um, maintain unity and build unity among the American people, and this is important. We all want to be able to affirm, you know, our respect for veterans. We want to affirm, you know, our respect for uh, the right of elections and the rule of law and all this. But in the middle of a speech that was clearly intended to build unity in a country in which there's much division, um, he, he decides he's going to launch into a pro-abortion line. I mean, what, what uh, we know what his position is on abortion, and, you know, he, he could have passed right over it. But in a speech intended to build unity, he actually says this, advancing liberty and justice also requires protecting the rights of women. The constitutional right affirmed in Roe v. Wade standing precedent for half a century, is under attack as never before. If we want to go forward, not backward, we must protect access to health care, preserve a woman's right to choose, and let's continue to advance maternal health care in America. It's completely contrary to his intention of creating unity. Not talking about him changing his position, which would be wonderful, but I don't expect it. But why in the middle of a speech designed to bring as many Republicans to their feet applauding uh, as they did, why in the middle of that speech would you lay out before the American people once again the single most inflammatory public issue and in the course of referring to it, you don't offer any nuance, uh, you don't offer any respect for unborn life, uh, you simply give the the red meat line for Planned Parenthood, you know. So I sometimes wonder who who helps him arrive at consistency or coherence, because I thought last night was a a good campaign speech, but it didn't tell me very much about what this president has accomplished in the first year of his presidency. Um, again, what do you do when you have a president who, I do, I mean this in all sincerity, with your children? How do you, how do you refer to the president with your children? Sally and I, for years, made sure that we never let a harsh characterization concerning our presidents uh, pass our lips as the kids were, you know, young. Now, as they got older, we're, we're not quite as tight on that. Um, but what do, you, what do you tell your kids when you have a president who you have a difficult time actually identifying uh, features, uh, virtues, uh, gestures, uh, agenda that you respect you know 
you want to make sure your kids grow up with respect for the presidency. But when you have a, a person who is sitting in the presidential office who lives a grotesquely inconsistent life as a Catholic uh, on the abortion issue, and there's no way of getting around this, by the way. It's unpleasant to say it, but it's, it's a grotesque incoherence uh, regarding his Catholicism. How do you maintain, as a faithful Catholic, referencing the President of the United States so that your children grow up with respect and not just thinking that politics is a matter of wrangling or giving in to your ire? <laughs> 